and welcome to the latest episode of Battleground 44 with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Our aim is to take you through the great events of this hinge year in the Second World War, illuminating the battles, the controversies, and the personalities. And our subject this week is rich in all three components. We're discussing the Battle of Berlin, the epic struggle by the RAF's Bomber Command and its ruthless and dynamic leader, Air Marshal Arthur Harris, to bring Germany to its knees by bombing Berlin flat, a battle that was at its height when 1944 opened. It was the moment when Harris and the RAF establishment were given the chance to prove their contention that bombing alone could win the war. What followed was a terrible ordeal for the RAF air crews and the population of Berlin alike. Patrick, you wrote about all of this in your book Bomber Boys, which came out back in 2008 to much acclaim. Can you tell us about the background to all of this? Thanks, Saul. Well, Bomber Boys is probably still my favourite book because I wrote it when the survivors of Bomber Command were still feeling rather sore at the way history had treated them. They'd pretty much been written out of the picture and what attention was paid to them was rather negative. So the aim was to do something to redress the balance. And I think I managed to do that a bit. Anyway, as you say, in January uh, 44, the Battle of Berlin was at its midway point. It had been launched in November by Bomber Harris, who promised Churchill that if the Americans came in with the RAF, they could, quote, wreck Berlin from end to end. And though the battle would cost the Allies 400 to 500 aircraft, it would, quote, cost Germany the war. Now, this is a big claim, and Harris felt able to make it because of the great improvements in bombing efficiency that had developed during the course of 1943. We always have to remember that for the first two and a half years of the war, the performance of Bomber Command had been absolutely abysmal. Their aircraft were totally inadequate for the stated aim of devastating German war factories, even if they could actually find them. Navigation was extremely rudimentary in those days. There was a a famous report, or rather a notorious report, called the Butt Report, on bombing accuracy, which came out in late 1941. Now, this was based not on the aircrew reports of what they'd achieved after they returned from their missions, but on the evidence, the unassailable evidence of the new cameras that had been fitted to aircraft to actually establish where the bombs were falling. Now, this revealed that 50% of bombs dropped fell in open country. Only 5% of bombers setting out actually bombed within five miles of the target. So claims that the campaign was having any effect were frankly a joke. Well, the arrival of big new bombers, notably everyone remembers the Lancaster, which became operational in 1942, and more importantly, improved radio wave navigation aids like G and Oboe. And eventually they got onboard ground tracking radar. That, That all changed the picture. So you've also got the creation of the Pathfinder Force, which is an elite force which goes ahead, marks the target areas with pyrotechnic flares for the uh, the uh, oncoming so-called main force to bomb on. But even so, even with these improvements, the realisation had actually dawned that precision bombing of factories and strictly military targets was simply unfeasible. So this forced the switch to what was euphemistically called area bombing, So the city is now the target. And from the spring of 1942, you start to see these devastating raids on big cities like Cologne. Uh, That was at the end of the May. That was the first thousand bomber raid. 
And Harris was quite clear about what the intention was. He wrote, the aim of the combined bomber offensive should be unambiguously stated as the destruction of German cities, the killing of German workers, and the disruption of civilized life throughout Germany, the destruction of houses, public utilities, transport, and lives, the creation of a refugee problem on an unprecedented scale, and the breakdown of morale both at home and at the battlefronts by fear of extended and intensified bombing are accepted and intended aims of our bombing policy. They are not byproducts of attempts to hit factories. That's pretty sort of brutal statement of intent, isn't it? Anyway, as 1943 progressed, it seemed that the policy was actually working. So in that summer, Bomber Command, along with the United States Army Air Forces, launched Operation Gomorrah, uh, which aimed to destroy the great northern port city of Hamburg. The RAF bombed by night and the USAAF by day for a week continuously. And by the end, 37,000 people were dead and 1.2 million, that's about two-thirds of the population, had fled the city. Now, this was devastating achievement by, by the bombers, and it caused a degree of panic among the German military and political hierarchy. Goebbels and others feared that if the Allied bombers could keep this up, the war could be lost. However, within a few months, the evacuees had all more or less gone back, and war production in and around Hamburg had resumed. But Harris was nonetheless convinced that he could repeat the performance on the capital itself and bring the war to an end. Now, Harris, Patrick, as we all know, is one of the great controversial figures of the war, wasn't he? My memory of him, of course, partly affected, I suppose, by his nickname, Bomber Harris, or Butcher Harris, as he was also known, is is that, you know, he was a pretty cold-blooded character who was prepared to use the ultimately ruthless method, and that's actually to bomb civilians to get what he wanted. And what he wanted, of course, as you say, was to try and end the war. But I think our overall belief is that that simply doesn't work and that, you know, when you try and intimidate civilian populations, you actually get the reverse effect. You get more support for your own side. So what's your assessment of Harris Patrick and and, and the extent to which this policy was successful? Well, first of all, it's what we should emphasize is not actually Harris's policy. He sort of fitted the bill. He looked like, as you say, a sort of cold-blooded, ruthless character and spoke like one. It wasn't him that came up with this policy. He was just carrying out what his superiors had devised uh, with great enthusiasm, it must be said. You know, Churchill and the War Cabinet had given their approval for all this, even though in public they always maintained the fiction that the targets were always military or industrial and uh, the civilian casualties were just an unfortunate consequence of that. So, I mean, you know, Charles Portal, the chief of the air staff, so the head of the RAF, was a very enthusiastic proponent of area bombing, but he was a much smoother operator than Harris. And like I say, after the war, he escaped the opprobrium that that was showered on old bomber Harris. But just get to talk about his personality, he had this huge, intimidating sort of manner. He didn't mind, he threw his weight about, he, he didn't mind um, posing his views on anyone, including the, the Prime Minister, High Wycombe, where he had his base, that's where the Bomber Command base was, uh, HQ rather, was quite close to Chequers, you know, the weekend residence of British prime ministers. So he used to drop in on Churchill, driving himself at crazy speeds through the country lanes in his Bentley. Now, Churchill was very wary of of Harris. He never came close to sacking him. He was very capable and and indeed happy to 
to sack army commanders uh, when they uh, fell into his disfavor, which was quite frequently. But he, ne- he never did that. He never threatened Harris with a sack, even when Harris was really out of line. As we referenced last week, you know, his resistance was really amounting to insubordination to diverting bombers from bombing Germany to supporting the D-Day preparations by destroying rail targets. Um, so he did eventually come round, but uh, only after a lot of sort of cajoling and browbeating. Why didn't Churchill sack him? Well, it was really because his calculation was it would do quite a lot of damage to public confidence. I mean, Harris was very much associated with the bombing campaign, which was for a while the only way we could actually hit back at Germany. So it had huge propaganda value, which greatly outweighed for quite a period the actual military effect it was having. It would also undermine uh, the morale of the crews. I think that was the calculation. So I think Harris really perfectly personified the spirit of revenge that was felt very strongly in Britain after the Blitz. And he was a great showman and performer. People loved it uh, when he gave a filmed address to the nation just after the first thousand bomber raid, in which he said, the Nazis entered this war under the rather childish delusion that they were going to bomb everyone else and nobody was going to bomb them. At Rotterdam, London, Warsaw, and half a hundred other places, they put their rather naive theory into operation. They have sown the wind, and so they shall weep the whirlwind. This, of course, is a biblical reference, and uh, you know people thrilled to hear that, that uh, the Germans would get what was coming to him. So he was a, he was a national figure as well as, a, as the head of the of Bomber Command. Everyone knew who Bomber Harris was. He had a pretty conventional background. His father was in the Indian civil service, but he spent his early life farming in Rhodesia. And this um, gave him a, a sort of pattern, I suppose, of, of colonial roughness. So he, to his peers, he didn't really seem like a, a gentleman, but he did have great leadership qualities, it had to be said. But he exercised it in a rather curious way, his leadership. He never actually visited the bases uh, where his men were flying off from, often not to return. He was a kind of rather remote, godlike figure. You said uh, he was called Butcher. That was his men that gave him that name, Butch. It became Butch Harris. And when I was writing my book, I remember uh, one of the aircrew describing how they would fantasize amongst themselves about how he chose the targets they were aiming for. And he imagined him standing in front of a a map of Germany with a dart in his hand and just sort of chucking it at the map and that would decide where where they were going. But they had a strange admiration for him, even though he was this remote, ruthless character. They somehow knew he was on their side, which he was. And you know, his intention, as always, as you said, Saul, is to get the war over with so people can live. So they sort of understood the logic of his ruthlessness. And after the war, those the survivors, when they all got together for reunions, and he was the guest of honor, he'd come in and they'd, be, they'd get to their feet stamping and cheering. So, yeah, even though the, to the public he became rather a kind of controversial figure, I think most of the men always had a, a lasting admiration for him. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, Patrick, that this very different form of leadership can actually work quite well. I mean, we, we traditionally, we think that the kind of Montgomery style, pattern style, where you're up front with the men. And if, if in the case of Montgomery, you're not up front while the battle's actually taking place, you've done a lot of visiting of the ordinary guys on the ground, cajoling them, giving them information, handing out cigarettes. You know, you're, you're actually in touch with them. And they believe that you're all part of the process, you know, that even these senior officers. So it is quite interesting that Harris's 
godlike, you know, standing apart method actually worked too. Now, let's talk a little bit about the bomber crews. I mean, their experience was very different from that of the other warriors of the Second World War, wasn't it? I mean, totally unlike the experience of the infantryman, for example, or the sailor, for the obvious reason that they operated from home territory, going off to do battle by night and returning to rural England in Lancashire or Yorkshire at dawn getting a few hours sleep and then maybe ending up in a pub. So it's a, you know, it's a really strange kind of half in, half out type of warrior experience, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, that's right. Um, and I think they were sort of aware of that. But in a, w- a way, this sort of bound the crews to the population, especially of these uh, so-called bomber counties, Lincolnshire being the, you know, the main one, but also Nottinghamshire, Yorkshire. So in the towns and villages there, people would see the bombers going over in the air at night and then during the day in the shops and the cafes and the pubs, they they would see loads of men and women in in Air Force blue uniforms. And this inspired a poem which really summed it up by Noel Coward. And it goes like this. Lie in the dark and listen. It's clear tonight, so they're flying high. Hundreds of them, thousands perhaps, riding the icy moonlit sky. Men, machinery, Bombs and maps, altimeters and guns and charts, coffee, sandwiches, fleece-lined boots, bones and muscles and minds and hearts, English saplings with English roots, deep in the earth they've left below. Lie in the dark and let them go. Lie in the dark. And listen, now that's a very evocative poem and it became very popular. Of course, Cow was using a bit of poetic license because many of the aircrew weren't English, but they were, they were Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, Poles, Belgians, French etc etc but the the sentiment was absolutely spot on okay what about the ethos of bomber command i mean was it similar for example to fighter command which of course also is a sort of half in half out in terms of being part of the civilian community and then going off to fight and coming back i mean we have the image of the dashing fighter boy cheery in the face of death it's a pretty enduring one isn't it yes well bomber command did have its own character and it was very different to the fighter boy ethos Crewing a Lancaster wasn't a very glamorous business. Guy Gibson, the great uh, hero of the Dambusters raid, said that flying a bomber was like driving a bus. <laughs> now, the bomber bases were plonked down in the flat potato fields of Lincolnshire, miles from the nearest town, where when you're off duty, you might actually get a chance to get on a bus or on your bike and go into the, to the nearest place to get some entertainment, but you're not actually going to have a great deal of fun you'll basically be drinking warm beer standing around a pub piano or maybe you know queuing up to get into a dance hall where you were competing with the local population or with loads of other servicemen more likely uh, for a girl desperate to lose your virginity before you die because if you were serving in bombers your chances of death were extremely high altogether 125,000 men passed through bomber commander's air crew of those 55,700 were killed. So that's a death rate of 44%, much higher than any other service. But the real percentage is is even greater than that. Uh, Some of those 125,000 were still in training when the war ended. So the real percentage is probably closer to 65%. There wasn't much in the way of squadron identity or camaraderie like there was in the fighter squadrons. Partly it was a question of size. Bomber squadrons were very much bigger, maybe 22 aircraft each uh, with a crew of seven. 
So it really came down to more, the, if you had an identity, it was really the identity of the crew, and that was very, very strong indeed. Now, one of the many very innovative things the RAF did during the course of the war was to create a way of actually forming these crews, uh, which was very unexpected and, and very informal. So roughly speaking, at the end of training, all the different trades, that's pilot, navigator, flight engineer, rear gunner, mid gunner, wireless operator, bomb aimer, they all were sort of milled around in a, in a hangar, just as if they were at a dance, uh, you know, trying to hook up with each other. And they ended up forming these t- teams just on human instinct and luck, and it worked amazingly well. So the crews were very, very mixed socially, geographically, and temperamentally. But ultimately, this kind of human chemistry really worked, and the loyalty that mattered, as I say, was not to your squadron, but to your own fellow crew members. And you depended utterly on their courage and their skill and their efficiency. So, you know, once you were sitting on the tarmac heading for Germany, the world really shrank to the size of a metal fuselage and the quality of the people who were inside it with you. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating, Patrick. I mean, I think I hope we get the opportunity to talk about the American aspect too. Obviously, today, we're mainly dealing with Bomber Command at the same time as you've already referenced in some of your comments, the U.S. Army Air Force is also fighting the the so-called Mighty Eighth, which is the subject, I think, of a forthcoming Apple series called Masters of the Air, which is the third of the three great set pieces by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, starting, of course, with Band of Brothers, then moving on to the Pacific. And now they're dealing with the Air Force. And I think if anyone wants to get a sense of what we're talking about, they really need to have a look at that series. The early comments about that sound like they're absolutely extraordinary. And by complete coincidence, I was sent the other day because I'm interviewing someone about a book about the Mighty Eighth, and it's called Luck of the Draw, written by a guy called Frank Murphy, who was knocked out in one of the raids, prisoner of war camp, but survived. But he talks about the the building up of this camaraderie between the crews and what he says quite clearly, and I'm sure it was the same for Bomber Command, Patrick, is that in the end, They were fighting for their fellow crew members. The reason they got back in those planes, he was utterly terrified, Frank Murphy. Every time he went up, he was a navigator. He he survived a lot of missions, 21, I think, before he was finally shot down. And he said the only reason we had the, the courage or the determination to keep going is because we didn't want to let our fellow crew members down. So it's, you know, we talk about unit loyalty and unit camaraderie and morale. I mean, in the end, the unit was the crew, wasn't it? You're talking about these seven or eight guys who you've got get incredibly close to. And of course, you rely hugely on, ultimately, for your survival. Absolutely. Yeah. There's something that we may touch on later on in the series, you know, the question of mental breakdown, which was very, very prevalent on this these operations because they were so absolutely, they absolutely shredded your nerves and the way it was dealt with. But ultimately, the thing that got you, even though you were quaking literally in your flying boots, before taking off, the thing that made you climb up that ladder and get into the aircraft was the fear of letting your mates down. That's what it ultimately came down to. Okay, we've set the scene for the greatest battle in Bomber Command's war. Do join us in part two to find out what happened next. Welcome back. Well, you mentioned, Patrick, that when Bomber Harris boasted to Churchill that his men could cost Germany the war, he did make a proviso, didn't he? He said, if the Americans come in with us. Now the United States Army Air Forces are very much part of the Allied war effort, aren't they? The Liberator and Flying Fortress bombers of the 8th Air Force have been operating from British bases 
since the summer of 1942, initially against targets in France. So the question is, Patrick, did the Americans come in with us as Harris wanted? No, they didn't at all. I mean, the Americans were pretty sceptical of the chances of success. They believed in operating by daylight and a protracted campaign against the big city. That's what the flyers referred to Berlin as. In the depths of winter, they're flying at maximum range, looked a pretty doubtful proposition, especially as they had bitter experience of how the Germans had improved their air defences. So in August 1943, the USAAF had started deep penetration raids into Germany. There was one famous or perhaps notorious raid targeting the factory in Schweinhurt, where ball bearing production for the German war effort was pretty much centralised, and also an important Messerschmitt factory at Regensburg. Now, the results were good, particularly at, at Regensburg, but the losses were very painful with 60 bombers shot down. That was twice the number that had been shot down on a raid to date. The Americans believed, initially at least, that bomber formations with their onboard armament could actually sort of give each other cover, protect themselves, so they didn't actually need a fighter escort. Well, this mission proved that this was not the case, and there would be no more deep penetration raids until the arrival of the uh, long-range, famous long-range P-51 Mustang fighter, which gave bombers uh, a significant degree of protection. So the answer is no, the Americans would not be coming along for the ride. And yet Harris orders the battle to commence nonetheless. Yeah, I think he sincerely believed they could win, despite the fact that they knew that the German air defences had been considerably strengthened, and particularly in their night fighter capability. That meant that the darkness, which was an important element in, in the whole equation, was not much protection. So by now, the the Germans have developed a very efficient system, starting with actually reporting uh, the incoming, the location, the direction of the incoming bombers uh, using radar, which then directs uh, strategically located night fighters onto the raiders with pretty much clinical precision. Uh, There are also new aircraft, the uh, Junkers 88, or well, it's a refinement of the existing Junkers 88, It's now got onboard radar, which can guide the actual aircraft onto the target in the final stages. And also another innovation, upward firing guns. These are 20 millimeter cannon, which are mounted in the the roof, essentially, of the aircraft, which could slink up unseen beneath the bomber stream as it passes over and fire into the belly of the bomber, igniting the bombs on board with results which can easily be imagined. So if the raiders get through the night fighters, they then face the very well-organized air defenses of the big city. Uh, Searchlights are all over the place. Once they pick you up, the crews called it being coned. It makes you a a juicy target for the many flat batteries dotted all over Berlin. Just as a quick aside, Patrick, you mentioned this uh, ability the Germans had to use radar to locate incoming planes and of course bombers are flying you know relatively slowly and are possibly as you say juicy targets now was the the so-called Brunewald raid which was uh, operation biting which actually recovered some of this radar it was a it was a paratroop raid that i've written about in my forthcoming book was the results of this raid that the raf were actually able to counteract this radar to a certain extent or was that quickly overcome that advantage 
Yeah, I think so. As always with war, you know, you, the advantage swings one way or the other quite rapidly, but it doesn't. It doesn't take long if you do, as a result of, as you say, the Brudeval raid. You get to know what the raider actually looks like, and you do for a while. You're able to. I mean, for, for example, a window uh, was one of the ways that the RAF was able to make life difficult for the German defenders. This is basically strips of aluminium which you shovel out of the aircraft. They flutter down and confuse the radar picture, and so. The operators on the ground have no idea a where the real force is and what direction it's going in. So, but that was fairly rapidly overcome. Don't ask me wh- how. I'm not a, a great expert on these sort of things. But yeah, so by the time the Battle of Berlin is on, that uh, advantage has been lost, and if you like, the uh, the balance has swung back in favour of the Germans. Okay, so let's actually talk about the battle and how it progresses. There were 16 raids in all from the beginning in November until the last one. I think the last official one in Berlin in January, but there were a number of other ones after there, weren't there? Plus an equal number of heavy diversion raids on other German cities to confuse the Luftwaffe. But the RAF got off to a good start, considering the odds, didn't they? That's right. Yeah, the, the night of 23rd, 24th November, that was the second raid. A few days before, there'd been a the opening raid, which is a bit of a dud, largely due to weather conditions. Well, that one, the second one, produced the effects that Harris was hoping for with pretty accurate bombing that wiped out large parts of the centre of Berlin. Indiscriminate, of course, so it includes churches, cathedrals, and even the old uh, British embassy building. It killed around 2,000 people and made 175,000 homeless, so a good result by Harris's standards. But that turned out to be the high point, and from then on, it's diminishing returns. The losses just got steadily worse, and there was no sign that the destruction was actually worth it. This was a new and hellish way of of waging war, and those who witnessed it spoke about it with a kind of horrified awe. Uh, One of the witnesses was Ed Murrow, the famous American broadcaster, who very bravely went on one of the raids in a 619 squadron, Lancaster, codenamed D-Dog, whose skipper was the squadron commander, a Scot called Jock Abercrombie. Murrow told his listeners that the 30 miles to the bombing run was the longest flight I have ever made. He went on, dead on time, the bomb aimer reported target indicators going down. Now, these target indicators are these pyrotechnics dropped by the pathfinders to show where to aim. He went on, at the same time, the sky ahead was lit up by bright yellow flares. Off to starboard, another kite went down in flames. The flares were sprouting all over the sky, reds and greens and yellows, and we were flying straight into the fireworks. Murrow had the illusion that the D-Dog was standing still, the four propellers thrashing the air, but we didn't seem to be closing in. Then the aircraft was filled with an unhealthy white light. I was standing behind Jock, and his quiet Scots voice beat into my ears. Steady, lads, we've been coned. His slender body half-lifted out of the seat as he jammed the control column forward and to the left, and then I was on my knees, for he had whipped D-Dog into a slashing turn. Morrow got a glimpse of the ground and saw the big 4,000-pound bombs the Lancasters carried that the crews called cookies, bursting below like great sunflowers gone mad. I looked down and the white fires had turned red. They were beginning to merge and spread just like butter does on a hot plate. 
pretty graphic stuff, isn't it? Well, a few days after Morrow's trip, D-Dog was shot down on another raid on Berlin, and all but one on board were killed, including Abercrombie. Wow. I mean, that's an extraordinary description by Murrow Patrick. I mean, it really gets you as close to being there as you could possibly get. How does it all end then? I mean, it's not going well towards the end, clearly. Yeah, even for Butch Harris, these losses were unsustainable. One squadron, 460, lost 26 aircraft and crews in between December 43 and the end of February. Now, there are usually about 22 bombers and crews in a bomber squadron. So that's uh, more than 100% losses. It couldn't go on. The battle finally came to an end with an utterly disastrous diversionary raid on Nuremberg at the end of March, when 95 bombers were shot down. So overall, the Battle of Berlin cost the RAF 1,047 bombers and crews. Well, in the judgment of the historians of the strategic bombing campaign, Charles Webster, Noble Franklin, Franklin himself was a bomber command navigator, their judgment was it was more than a failure, it was a defeat. So why do you think it went so badly for the RAF, Patrick? Well, there's several factors. Um, for one thing, you know, Berlin uh, is a big, sprawling city. It's full of lakes and parks. There's no concentration of old buildings. There's no old centre that could form the basis for all-consuming firestorms such as occurred in Hamburg. Firestorm, of course, is when the conflagration caused by the incendiary bombs, which shower down along with the cookies, is so intense that it creates its own wind system that sucks in air to intensify the blaze. Another factor was the air defences are highly organised and efficient, especially the night fighters, as we mentioned, and they was the night fighters that accounted for most of the losses. But the whole concept was wrong in the first place. As you said at the outset, so, you know, this idea of, of undermining morale. Harris believed that uh, after Bomber Command were finished, the population would be begging for mercy and driven to the point where they turned on their masters and uh, demanded that they stop the war, essentially. Now, this shows a profound and probably willful, I would say, misunderstanding of the effects of bombing on civilian morale. The claim that bombing could win wars single-handedly by undermining the will of the civilians uh, to support the war had already been exposed as a fantasy as long ago as the Spanish Civil War and, of course, in Britain during the Blitz. And the idea that it would be any more effective in Germany, a Germany that's controlled by the Nazis, uh, was just plain bonkers. But there was one beneficial consequence, wasn't there? I'm thinking of the fact that this, to some extent, chastens Harris. Perhaps that's too strong a word in his case. But this failure or defeat certainly reduces his ability to resist demands by the D-Day commanders that the bombers should be diverted away from Germany to concentrate on preparing the battlefield for the forthcoming invasion of, of Northern Europe later that year. Yeah, that's right. The might of Bomber Command was put to what, to my mind, was uh, much better use. That's isolating the battlefield, to use the parlance of the day, by bombing the railway system and preventing the speedy arrival of reinforcements to prevent an Allied breakout from the bridgehead. Harris was by no means a spent force, but um, this had been his moment for immortality by bringing the war to an end through the very blunt instrument of Bomber Command alone, and it failed. Okay, well, that was fascinating. But now it's time, as promised, for listeners' questions. 
We love hearing from you and we hope that this new series will provoke the kind of lively response we've had from our other offerings. So do keep please sending your questions to podbattleground at gmail.com. Right, the first up today is from Chris Waterworth from West Sussex. Thanks, guys, for your work with the pod. My question is, Stalin keeps going on about the Allies not starting a second front in Europe, but there was a second front that started in July 43 when we invaded Italy. I think I'm right in saying with the largest amphibious operation at the time, and it must surely have taken a lot of German troops away from the Eastern Front. What do you think, Patrick? Well, yeah, it was a, it was a second front of sorts, but it was definitely not what Stalin wanted. He wanted a landing in northern Europe, in northwestern Europe, that would drive on to Berlin and have an immediate and dramatic effect on German dispositions, something the Germans could not ignore. They'd have to actually switch resources away from from the Eastern Front. And I think the North African and the subsequent landings in Sicily and Italy didn't put that much pressure on the Eastern Front. The geography is very different. It, a lot of this is about geography, isn't it? So between, even if you land in southern Italy, between you, the Allies, and um, the enemy, or the heartland of the enemy, uh, you've got the very difficult terrain of the Italian long, thin strip of Italy, much of it mountainous. And then in front of you, you've got the barrier of the Alps. So I think a glance at the map would tell you, you can actually bide your time and see how the Allies fare before you start diverting significant resources away from what Hitler always saw as the real battle, which was in the east. So indeed, that's the way it turned out. Once they get ashore in Italy, progress is very, very slow. And uh, it's, it doesn't require a massive dilution of German resources on the Eastern Front at any point, actually, does it, in the Italian campaign, as far as I can remember, so. Well, we're going to get James Holland on the show shortly. I mean, he's just written one book, The Savage Storm, about the beginning of the Italian campaign. He's also written about Sicily, of course. I'm currently working on North Africa. And I, it'll be interesting to hear his view on this, Patrick, because um, my feeling is actually the Italian campaign's been somewhat underestimated, and Tunisia, for that matter, which uh, I'm currently writing about, in terms of the resources that it draws away from other fronts. Now, you could say, well, you know, are they literally taking them from the Eastern Front? Well, in some cases, they were. But the interesting thing about North Africa and the Italian campaign is the number of fighters, in particular fighters, but also bombers that the Germans lose. So their air power is being steadily eroded. And of course, they've got to replace those planes with industrial production. And Phil O'Brien makes the interesting point, and I'm sure we'll come on to him at some point in the course of our Battleground 44 series, in which he says that actually an awful lot of resources were being drawn away from the Eastern Front, partly by the, the strategic bombing campaign because of the number of anti-aircraft guns and fighters that were required to combat those planes, as you've just pointed out, Patrick, very effective night fighting force, but it had to be constantly updated and, and regenerated. So I think there might be something in this argument that that second front that began in North Africa and of course went on into southern Europe did actually play a slightly more effective role in weakening uh, Germany than has really been acknowledged up till now but we'll, we'll wait in, until we hear the latest research from people like James on that. We've got one here from the at the night Irish this is via Twitter now he's been listening I assume it's a he uh, have been listening to both us and our friends on the we have ways podcast both in the goal hanger stable and he's struck by the contrary views between you, Saul, 
and James Holland, our friend James Holland, on the subject of Mark Clark, the American general. Now, he's, a, he's quite a controversial figure, isn't he? Mark Clark doesn't have a particularly good rep, but he's saying, have we got Mark Clark wrong? Was he just simply the wrong man for Italy for that particular campaign, or was he doing his best with fewer resources than were actually needed for the job. Which side of the debate were you on on this? The side of the debate I'm on, and, and James and I will have to uh, agree to disagree on this, is that I don't think Clark was the right man. Actually, I think temperamentally he was he was wrong. He was someone who known Eisenhower since their days at West Point together, and and I think he was supported and promoted above his station. He was a brilliant organizer and a trainer of men, but that doesn't mean he's going to be a great field commander and. There were a lot of errors made, not only in the initial invasion, but also in the actual fighting itself. On the other hand, of course, James would argue, well, these were unique conditions, uniquely difficult conditions. And actually, their attempt to fight their way up the peninsula of Italy was bound to be slow and that Mark Clark actually did a half decent job. I'm not entirely convinced about that. I think one of the biggest errors he made is not to take more advantage of intercepting the German army after the breakout of Anzio. That's, of course, after Casino, as the Germans are pulling back up towards Rome, there was an opportunity to intercept that army. It was never really taken. And again, Clark maybe could argue that, you know, his subordinate commanders at Anzio are partly to blame. But in the end, the buck stops with him. So yeah, we're going to have to agree to disagree on that. Uh, James is right that the conditions were uniquely difficult, but also was Clark the right man? I'm not so sure. You know, we're really getting into counterfactual here. Who could have done a better job? And even Montgomery, to be fair, struggled with getting his armies moving until he was brought back to England to prepare for D-Day. Steve from Lancashire is asking about the question of prisoners of war. One question that bothers me about World War II is what happened to all the POWs on both sides after the war? How long were Axis POWs kept by the Allies, i.e., Germans, Italians, and all the various other European armies or soldiers that were on Hitler's side in the, in the conflict. And he also asked, did the Axis powers still have allied POWs after the end of the war? Well, Steve, we could actually go on. For, it's a very mixed picture. Everyone did different things. Um, just very briefly, I'll say that we actually hung on to German prisoners of war for, uh, you know, in some cases, several years, I think, after war's end, before they actually got home. On the Axis side, of course, the massive confusion caused by defeat meant that, in some cases, people got back relatively quickly. A lot of the camps that were in Germany itself or in its conquests, its near conquests like Poland, they were all back home, I think, you know, within the year. Some of them were back within a few months uh, the RAF actually laid on a, a wonderfully efficient airlift that got all of them back within a, a few weeks of the war ending. But of course, on the on the other side, if you were a German prisoner in the hands of the Soviets, then uh, you were lucky to get home at all. A lot of them died in captivity. A lot of them were kept for years before anything anyone even knew what had happened to them. So it's a very mixed and confused picture. Subject actually should be of a book. I can't think of one myself. But uh, it's something that we'll have to look into in the future, maybe towards the end of the uh, the series. But yeah, I it's very it's very difficult to give you a simple answer in a few sentences. I mean, generally speaking, Patrick, the the, the worst place to be, as you say, was in Soviet hands of the ninety one thousand uh, German and Axis 
prisoners of war captured in the Stalingrad campaign, only 5,000 got back to Germany. Uh, And certainly some of the senior commanders were kept for an awful long time, sometimes well into the 1950s. I think there's one infamous example of uh, one of the divisional commanders at Stalingrad who's finally released in 1954 after a pretty hellish experience in Soviet prisoner of war camps. And he's only been back in Germany for a a relatively short time when he commits suicide. So particularly tragic end to a, a horrific story. Okay, final question from Alex in London. Hi, guys. Patrick, you mentioned you were writing a book on the liberation of Paris. Why didn't the Germans defend the city? Surely, strategically, a big city like Paris is an easily defendable location that could bog down the Allied advance, allowing the Germans to regroup and counterattack. Any insight as to why this did not happen? Well, Alex, big chunks of the book are actually devoted to this question. So, again, um, I don't really have the time here to go into it all. But it is a fascinating question, and it involves lots of elements, not least the character of the German military governor of Paris at the time, Dietrich von Holtitz, who was brought in just a couple of weeks before the liberation to transfer to stiffen the defences, and with orders, indeed, from Hitler to destroy the place if he couldn't defend it, to actually blow the whole place to smithereens, something he didn't do for a a very complex uh, array of reasons, a lot of them to do with self-preservation. But uh, he emerged from the war with his reputation not just intact, enhanced. He was a good German, the saviour of Paris. Very, very contentious claim in my view. And my book uh, goes into some detail about why that was not necessarily the case. But just on the simple military front, well, you know, at this point in August 1944, The Germans had been soundly defeated in the Battle of Normandy. They'd been routed and uh, massacred, essentially, in uh, the Falaise Gap. A lot of them get away. Um, This, again, is one of those stories, uh, like you were referring to Mark Clark earlier, Saul. This was a a case where uh, it seemed that Bradley had uh, actually allowed, uh, didn't quite close the neck of the sack, if you like, and and quite a few of them got away, minus their equipment, which is, of course, to the good, but uh, a surprising number did manage to escape, leaving many thousands of dead on the battlefield. So they made a strategic decision not to stand on the River Seine, which is um, what the Allies expected them to do. And the, the truth of the matter was they just simply didn't have the wherewithal to fall back, regroup, and around Paris uh, and put up any any significant opposition. So at a certain point by mid August, it's clear that the only way of defending Paris is to go down in so, some sort of Gotterdammerung, you know, Twilight of the Gods, last stand, which wouldn't do anyone any good. Um, not that Hitler didn't think that was um, that was the right thing to do, but uh, in a, by this stage, his power over his generals actually is, is waning quite dramatically. So people feel that they can defy him and, and perhaps get away with it. But look forward to, well, this July, when my book comes out, it's called Paris 44, The Shame and the Glory. And uh, all this is examined in some detail there. Great stuff, Patrick. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us on Friday for more news and analysis from Ukraine and Gaza, and also more listeners' questions. And the following Wednesday, when we'll be back with another episode of Battleground 44. Goodbye. Goodbye.